Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's Uli Bear's Think About It. On the podcast, Uli interviews all kinds of interesting people about all kinds of interesting things. He has three series that I'd highly recommend, one on free speech, another on great books, and finally, one on affirmative action. You can find Think About It on Apple Podcasts, or you can just go to Uli's website, which is ulrichbear.com. That's U-L-R-I-C-H-B-A-E-R.com. And you can download or listen to episodes there. We think this is a terrific podcast. In fact, it's so terrific that we're going to offer you a little taste of it. The episode you're about to hear is from Think About It, and I hope you enjoy it. Ralph Waldo Ellison's Invisible Man is one of America's masterpieces. The novel won a National Book Award and remains one of the keys to understanding the world we live in. I spoke with John Callahan, who is Ellison's literary executor, and the person who gave us Juneteenth, Ellison's posthumously published novel, the short story collections Flying Home and Shadow and Act, and also a forthcoming edition of Ellison's letters spanning about 60 years and encompassing almost a thousand pages. Listen to this conversation that I conducted in a hotel room overlooking Central Park, looking at Harlem, where Ellison lived and where he is buried, and finding out from John how to think and make sense of Invisible Man today. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Bear. Invisible Man. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact, a matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. 
I, I am not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. Then, too, you're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision, or, again, you often doubt if you really exist. So I'm so excited to sit here with John Callahan, mm -hmm. one of the people who probably knows most about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and Juneteenth and the essays and the stories. So first of all, John, thank you for making time. My pleasure. So we're sitting here overlooking Central yeah. Park and Upper Manhattan. From here, we can probably glimpse a space where Trinity Cemetery is, where Ellison is buried, and the plaque on Riverside Drive where he used That's to live. Right. So we're kind of looking at his world. And the riot, Reinhardt. Reinhardt and the riots library. in Harlem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's his name? Todd Clifton gets killed. Oh, this is, this is a scene. New this York, is this, exactly. Harlem's places. This is the that. setting, actually, of much of Invisible Man. Not all of it, but most of it. Right? Yep. And I want to start out by asking you a question about the last line of this book. Ah. So in the last line of this book, quite famously, the narrator says, who knows, but then on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. You left out. The sentence before that. What else? I tried to tell you what was really happening when your eyes were looking through. It is this which frightens oh, me. It is this which frightens yeah, me. That's right. Yeah. So tell me something about this ending of this book, which is kind of an admonition or exhortation for us to listen. Who's addressed here? I always thought for, for many years, Uli, I thought, you know, God is one who knows but that I speak for you, but that on the lower frequencies. And by the way, that, that marvelous phrase, he wrote it, he deleted it, and again, he wrote, he put it back on the lower frequencies. I speak for you. And it seems to me, you know, a profoundly rhetorical question. He's saying, you know, I do speak for you. Right. And the thing is, though, and I thought it's really an uplifting line, and I think it is, but this is the point one at which he decides to come out. He's not going to hide. He's not going to be an underground man anymore. He's going to, and he, you know, he writes the book, and he's going to emerge. And yet, lest we get too carried away, and unless we start believing that this is going to be easy, mm -hmm. he has an amazing sentence in there. And it is this which frightens me. Not, it's wonderful, join the fray. You're, you're my brother. I'm your, your brothers and brothers right. and sisters. He's saying, it is this which frightens me. Did anybody else, that he would be speaking for other people, for the reader? Because invisibility is a terrifying condition. And we're all invisible. It's unbelievably wonderful because it's, it's very specific to the African-American condition, and yet he's so specific about that that he makes it into a universal condition. So the frightening part, so what frightens the narrator here, that this is what frightens me? Why well, would it frighten him for everybody to pick up this book and say, I see myself in this book? Because invisibility is frightening. Mm -hmm. If we're all invisible to one another, it's a terrifying condition. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that there's a kind of loneliness. And, and yet he's also frightened that this may be where everybody sees themselves. Well, all of America yeah, sees He himself. thinks he does. So he hopes he does, but we got to get over it. We okay. got to overcome it. We got to see it to then overcome. it. Yeah, it's like the beginning of the epilogue. And the, and the other thing to say about this book is you're obviously as enthusiastic about it as I am. That it's only very very late in the process of writing it and editing it that he came up with the prologue and epilogue. Those many of the passages in these chapters essentially he had written, but the structure, the form of it, came later. If you think about the epilogue. He says, you know, I kept thinking, but I couldn't shake it, and I was thinking about my grandfather. You know, what the hell did he mean? He says, hell, he must have meant. And he has this amazing, I think it's, it's kind of prophetic. Ellison another time said that 
literature was not just a retelling, but a foretelling. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, I read the epilogue as a kind of Ellison's foretelling of the civil rights movement. And what's the grandfather's advice that he revises several times in the book? He remembers his yeah. echo of his grandfather's voice, and he tries to adhere to it, but also realize. Well, he wants to know what he says. What did he mean? Yes, and to death and destruction. Say yes, you know, because mm-hmm. he gives up his gun in, in the Reconstruction. And I think it's affirmation. He means affirm the American promise. It's not realized, but he means affirm the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, you know. And then he starts to talk about them. And it's an amazing passage. You got the book. It's right? the beginning of the epilogue. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he says, perhaps he hid his meaning different. Perhaps he hid his meaning deeper than I thought. Perhaps his anger threw me off. I can't decide. Could he have meant hell? He must have meant the principle, that we were to affirm the principle on which the country was built, and not the men, or at least not the men who did the violence. And he goes into this whole riff, and then the pronouns begin to shift. Who is we? Sometimes we is African Americans, who had to deal with slavery. Sometimes it extends to the whole country. But it's this amazing double imperative. His grandfather That's on right. his deathbed says something, and then he says, yeah. he reaches back to the founding That's generation right. and says... That's right. And I, That's, right. That's, That's what right. I was wondering about the lower frequencies, that Ellison said so many times that you had to listen to things that were said below the That's way right. of speaking it. There's a sentence here he has in one of the essays. He talks about where he comes from, when Oklahoma and the region and That's Texas, right. and he talks about President Johnson. And yeah. he says, it is a place where one must listen beneath the surface of what a man has to say, and where the rhetorical style is far less important than the relationship between a man and statements and his conduct. So he says you have to listen mm-hmm. very carefully to what people say, what they do, how that's linked. And I yeah. thought these lower frequencies is also what the book is, that Ellison had said once, American literature is actually made out of spoken language. Yep. And you have to listen to how people speak. Yep. And people have all these different vernaculars and dialects and mm-hmm. idioms, and they have to speak, and he tries to capture that kind of multiplicity of voices. So the lower frequencies of his grandfather, he tried to hear something underneath the statement. Yeah, that's right. I, that, that's good. It's such a resonant phrase, lower frequencies, obviously, a jazz word as well. And it seems to me it's the lower frequencies or perhaps also the, the frequencies that we all share, the frequencies mm-hmm. of the humanity that we all carry around, mm-hmm. you know, if there's any validity to what's universal. Because he also talks about higher frequencies. And I dedicated a book to him, and I dedicated it to, to Ralph Ellison on the higher frequencies. Because he always used to kid that I was Irish. You know, we, were, we used to go back and forth about the Irish. And right. With what a black Irishman was. So what does higher frequencies mean in this title of the book? It means, if I'm, when I'm thinking about the higher frequencies, is the, is the individual, inviolable, different personality yeah. that everybody has. It's higher, okay. but the lower it is maybe what we share, right. what we hold in common. Because we have to hold both in common. And when you just said that, that we share humanity, there's another frequency we share. We share being American. Absolutely. There's, there's a kind of link between America, democracy, and humanity, which this book is trying to work out. Yeah. It's a very unsentimental book about yeah, being American. Good. right? It's unsentimental about race, which is also one of That's the, right. the reasons it has incredible impact. And the lower frequency also thought, if Ellison had known that even today, 2019, 
after we've had a black president for eight years, now we're living through another presidency, very different kind with Trump, yeah. that this book still resonates so much. This is, I think, also one of the frequencies that he couldn't have anticipated, right? You said he was writing for future. Yeah, that's right. But to go back to the idea of humanity in relation to what Ellison thought of Americanness in the novel. Yeah, it's interesting. Here you are, you're a German immigrant to America. Right. For you to focus on that, on the Americanness of the book is wonderful. Well, his name is Ralph Waldo. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it, I actually always thought the irony when he's in at the school in the South, the student and the guy, Mr. Norton, says, have you read Emerson? And he says, yeah. no, I've never heard of this. That's right. <laughs> it's great. And then, yeah. and then you know the distance between the narrator and Ralph Waldo Ellison is really great distance here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, he, because I didn't want to be glib about the universal. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Except, boy, there's a lot of interest in Ellison in other countries, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. not just Europe. But the American, this is the bridge. Because mm-hmm. there's a way in which this is a very specially American book on this. Because now, you know, sometimes people want to say, well, it's, it's not American. So many Americans are anti-American. Oh, right. You know? yeah, yeah. And they're above it all. They're oh, not, well, that's know. interesting. He hated that. And he was <coughs> a very pronounced American yep. and embraced this yeah. promise, this unrealized potential, right? So and mm-hmm. he connects himself to the great American writers. Always. Faulkner, yeah. Melville. Yeah. Even the Twain, James, Twain, yeah. the New England transcendentalist, yeah. James. These are yeah. the pantheon and probably That's a few right. European novelists as well. Yep. So he's writing himself into a canon. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky as that. When the book starts out, the narrator, this kind of terrifying chapter of the Battle Royal, oh, yeah. and he has to give a speech. But before he's allowed to give the speech, he's put in this incredibly violent, cruel battle where he's blindfolded mm-hmm. with a bunch of other black students for the entertainment of white people. And there's incredible violence, and he keeps on trying to be focused and say, I want to give this speech, and I want to convince them that my speech matters, that and I he, have something to say here. And he also wants to be in their favor. He also tries to bribe the guy, the best fighter, right. of the other black guys. And the guy says, bullshit, I don't, I don't want your money. This is what I do well, and I'm going to do it well. And the speech, of course, is not Emerson at all. It's Booker T. Washington's speech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the speech fu- just says what? The speech is he learned the speech. He's so proud of the speech. Well, it's, the speech it, goes over pretty well because it says what? Well, it's the Atlanta Exposition Address of Booker T. He, mm-hmm. Much of it is just stolen from Booker T's speech. He accepts segregation. He said we can be separate as the fingers of the hand and one is the hand. And that's, that's the, what Booker T. Washington, that was his rationalized metaphor to accept segregation. I don't think Booker T never truly accepted white supremacy for one minute, but he said, look, we don't have the guns. It's again his grandfather. We don't have the firepower to beat these people, so we got to yes them to death. Right. And if we keep saying yes and seeming to accept our place, that's when we'll, we'll be able to reverse things and become truly free. When I thought in this <coughs> chapter, when I read it for the first time, it's very difficult to actually think that this speech really says what could happen after this incredible violence that these people are put through. Mm-hmm. This is their only chance of getting any kind of recognition, any kind of reward mm-hmm. or compensation. And then oh, he yeah. gives a speech and says, oh, we'll get along fine with you people. Who are yeah. so- but he doesn't mean it. He knows it's bullshit, and they know it is, but they give him the scholarship. Well, and then the great thing mm-hmm. in the speech is when we see that the invisible man doesn't really know who he is. And there's a real unconscious going on. When they mock him. He gives his speech. And they mock him. And they say, any word over more than two syllables, they say, what's that, boy? 
What are you saying? He says, social responsibility, which is what they expect. And, huh? Can't he, boy, what's that? Social responsibility, sir. Social responsibility. What? What? Can't do it. And eventually, he says, social equality. And they, everything goes quiet, because that's, social equality is, is what is forbidden and prohibited. And the superintendent said, what's that? What's that you say, boy? What's that word you say? You don't mean that about it. Social equality, do you, boy? And he realizes what he's done. He says, oh, no, 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 sir, I was just swallowing blood. So they, they beat the shit out of him, the other black guys do, with the full support of these guys. And eventually you swallow blood, and eventually you can't take it anymore, you know, and you, and you tell the truth. But it's you know, amazingly you powerful. Yes, it is. The moment in the book that the word social equality is so offensive to everybody That's that right. he's suddenly, after this bloody battle... He's at the risk for his life or, yeah. or something, and he has to take it back and he has to swallow his own blood. There's something so that a word could be so trigger so much antagonism and violence. So he realizes right well, now. Well, that's what's happening inside him. Yeah. You know, his, his body is rebelling against this stuff. And it's interesting what uh, you mentioned the, the, the Battle Royal and, and what Ralph does there, because there are three kind, and he talked about this, there are three rituals that these guys make these young black guys undergo. And it's important to note that this is a ritual, which means these, these bastards repeat this every year. This is what a young black guy in the South, they're trying to teach him some lessons. You say, well, what are they? Well, the stripper, right. the nude white stripper. And then there's, there's one guy, who, this big guy, who gets an erection, and he tries to, he puts his hands on, on his crotch. And if we didn't get it before, we sure as hell get it now. We're going to show you something, boy. And, you know, you, we're, going to, we're going to look at it. And if you ever touch it or look at it again, you, you, you will castrate your ass or you'll be lynched. Mm -hmm. And that's supposed to sear in their minds. And then the second thing is the, we got absolute power and we control everything. And we're going to decide, you, we're going to set you fighting with each other. It used to be known as a signal. Kill a nigger on Saturday night syndrome, where the police would just look the other way. They didn't care as long as blacks were killing blacks. The last thing is speech that they have him give, because they're training him to be a Booker T. Washington, to be the black guy who will be educated and allowed. He will be in charge of his people, so on. So it's all, what he gets is a lesson in, in how it really is. And then remember what happens, they give him the scholarship. He goes home and he dreams, he has this kind of nightmare, and he dreams of his grandfather. And he's carrying, he's got the, the scholarship, and his grandfather says, what's that, boy? Oh, keep reading that thing, I want you to turn, and it's page, they're empty. It's just gold pages, and then finally he comes, there's some writing on the page, and his grandfather said, read it, out loud. And what does it say? Keep this nigger boy running. That's really the message. And his grandfather's trying to help him interpret the world. Right. So the whole book is a coming of age. But he doesn't at this point realize that this is all a setup, this is all fraud, and he shouldn't save the institute. He gets expelled, no. he gets kicked out. Because he, he wants to he believe. He pulls away the curtain and says, this yeah. is actually what life is like for people down yeah. here. And then the headmaster says, how dare you show yeah. this white benefactor what people live like yeah. down here. And he says, because he asked me to. And Bledsoe just gets really furious. Boy, what's happening to you Negro boys down here? He said, did you forget to lie?
What? You want me to lie to the trustee? It's all this kind of, it's wonderful initiation stuff. It gets at the condition of young African-American guy. It also gets at the rest of us. Well, sure it you've a, had some of it that. It actually iPads. starts pulling away the kind of facade of America. And he yeah, says, that's you, right. You should learn to lie. And then he goes up north with the seven letters and never opens yeah. them. And you think, right. just open one of these letters after your dream, your prophetic dream. And he keeps on thinking, well, I'm going to honor this code. Yeah. And these, but these people are here to help me and I will be mm-hmm. helped by them. That's right. And then there's a scene where this guy, the son of some Emerson. wealthy patriot, Emerson, is the young Mr. Emerson, Emerson not yeah. by accident. He reveals the content of a letter to him. It's a very ambiguous scene. This yeah, man feels some solidarity and feels he's betrayed. Well, he's gay. Father. He's obviously gay. He wants him to go to the Calamus Club, and I have my friends. And, and, and that's kind of funny. I don't know that you can talk too much about it these days in this but culture. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting moment. So Emerson yes, is, is the gay son of this tycoon yeah. and who says... So he's an outsider. He's too. an outsider, and my father is oppressive and overwhelming. Exactly. I will share with you how false these people that's really right. are. That's right. And I think then the narrator gets it also. He doesn't want to trust this guy either. Yeah, that's right. Because he certainly... So he learns something. He learns <laughs> something the hard yeah, way. That's but right. It, but even that's that... Right. And so this novel has... When I reread it recently, it has such momentum. Yeah. Well, it is such great. an American novel in this way. It's not static ever. He's, he's no. never standing still. No. Well, that's interesting. You write about all that stuff. and Yeah, you probably have read his wonderful acceptance speech when he gave, they gave yeah. him... Brave words for a startling occasion. Because he says, I didn't start out to write a book like this. I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to tell a story. So I tried the hard-boiled novel, the style of Hemingway or Richard Wright, the proletarian novel, you know. And he said, I just couldn't, it didn't work. Because the American language is too rich. The American experience is too rich. You, you can't, it was too small a cubbyhole, too small a space. And then he said, I tried to do the other, the other dominant paradigm. The Jamesian novel, novel of managers. How the hell could I do that? And he, so you get this sense of, of he had to invent. He tried to do again like Invisible Man right. at, at the at the smoker. He tried to do what he was supposed to do, and it didn't work. How interesting! Like the narrator, he's supposed to do follow the rules. Yeah. And the first type, the Hemingway, right, is the fast-paced, stripped of all rhetoric. Yeah. Not a lot of introspection. Just and Ralph loved Hemingway. Hemingway, he loved him. Very important. And he loved James, but That's James, right. he quotes way. James a lot. And James famously right. said, the first person novel is a loose body yeah. monster. And so he said, I was going to try to write the first person narrative that's both psychological and action. Yeah, in a that's way. right. But that's a new that's thing right. then, right? So the novelty is, is also right. that. And that bedeviled him within the second novel, I think. He was trying to do the same thing. It was tougher. He came upon it with Invisible Man because he, he's got that narrator, Invisible Man, and his voice... And he can hang everything on that tree. Right. And he can have people tell these set pieces, like True Blood. Right. I mean, that's True Blood's story. Well, what the hell? It's Ralph's story. An invisible man, man heard True Blood. But he, he is the narrator who would hear that story. And those inventions of Ross the Destroyer yeah. and the Reinhardt, these characters have these mythic dimensions in American literature. Yeah. They become real, but they're modeled on real people. Well, you see in the, in the letters, he writes Langston Hughes and... I think it's even as early as 1939, and he, he riffs on, he talks about Ross. You realize that even then in Harlem, getting to know Harlem, he's fascinated with Harlem. He's picking up some of what he will bring to fruition in Invisible Man. Right. There's a scene you alluded to earlier with this young man, Todd Clifton, who he yeah. friends, who was a youth leader in the movement. So this is modeled on, presumably, I guess, the Communist Party, the Brotherhood. So he's recruited, but then he abandons and leaves this organization. Yeah. 
I wonder if that is really the tragic part of this book, although Alison probably wouldn't have liked this word tragic at all. Well, tragic comic. Tragic comic, yes. yes. So, a, so, where are you going with And then Clifton gets murdered by a policeman, yeah. shot because presumably it's just some fake arrest. You're right down the street from where we are right now, here somewhere in the library. Yeah. Exactly, right <laughs> in the upper right. 40s near Bryant Park. That's right. And then there's a funeral in Harlem. And this resonates yeah. really strongly today when we have the entire movement of Black Lives Matter. It's 60 years later, and we still right. have the same scenes going on of young unarmed men who've done Absolutely. nothing wrong, being shot to death, you and bet. nothing happens. So in some ways, I wonder, this resonance that he picked up a scene like that and gave it so much depth. And there's a moment where he talks about this, and he says, people who live outside of history. It's a really amazing... Yeah, uh, the zoot suiters. The, the zoot suiters, right. And they said... Walking away in the sun, I tried to erase the scene from my mind. I wandered down the subway stairs, seeing nothing. My mind plunging. The subway was cool, and I leaned against a pillar hearing the roar of trains passing across on the other side, feeling the rushing roar of air. Why should a man deliberately plunge outside of history and peddle an obscenity, my mind went on abstractedly. Why should he choose to disarm himself, give up his voice, and leave the only organization offering him a chance to define himself? The platform vibrated, and I looked down. Bits of paper whirled up in the passage of air, settling quickly as a train moved past. Why had he turned away? Why had he chosen to step off the platform and fall beneath the train? Why did he choose to plunge into nothingness, into the void of faceless faces, of soundless voices, lying outside history? I tried to step away and look at it from a distance of words read in books, half-remembered. For history records the patterns of men's lives, they say. Who slept with whom, and with what results, who fought, and who won, and who lived to lie about it afterwards. All things, it is said, are duly recorded. All things of importance, that is. But not quite. For actually, it is only the known, the seen, the heard, and only those events that the recorder regards as important that are put down. Those lies his keepers keep their power by. But the cop would be Clifton's historian, his judge, his witness, and his executioner. And I was the only brother in the watching crowd, and I the only witness for the defense, knowing neither the extent of his guilt nor the nature of his crime. Where were the historians today, and how would they put it down? I stood there with the trains plunging, in and out, throwing blue sparks. When I read this, I thought, this is a novelist taking an event that happens on a practically, sadly, daily basis in America. Yeah. And he said, no one will write this history in the right way. So the novelist has to become the witness and make it come alive for us again. Yeah. So this scene is a way to bring to consciousness something that the legal apparatus, the political commentary, mm -hmm. the journalist cannot yeah. quite adequately. You have, can you find that page again? It's an, he says these people are living out of history. It's this yeah, amazing passage, which I thought was so... This is right yeah. here. It's right at the moment when he witnessed the murder of Lipton right. by this police officer. Yeah. He goes on a little later. It's interesting, because you write about the... Well, we really do see this book very similarly. It's wonderful. It's a pleasure to 
to hear you talk about it. First piece I ever wrote about Ellison it was a piece called uh, Chaos, Complexity, and Possibility, and the Historical Frequencies of Ralph Ellison, I called it. That's how I got to meet him. You. So you wrote this essay and then he read it and then, or did you send I it? Said, I got it back, uh, you know, when many, many of the things you write, we publish them, and most of the time they come back for me at least, and I think, shit, I wish I'd taken another week. Okay. I could have improved this. This thing came back, yeah, the Ellison essay, and I read it, I said, Jesus, who wrote it? Did you really write this? It, I, did, I didn't want to change it. So I found his address and just said, dear Mr. Ellison, enclosed, please find it. Went on to something else. Only five weeks later, I got back a two-page single-space letter. Really? From Ellison. And what did he say to you about the essay? Oh, he loved it. And he, loved it. he said that I was in, in trepidation when I saw your title, Historical Frequencies. He talked about the essay quite a bit and about American literature somewhat. And at the end, he said, if you're ever in New York and have the time, Mrs. Ellison and I would be glad to see you. That's how I met him. So how, did you, how was your first visit? Did oh, it was great. But, you know, and I realized this as I've, Years have gone by, you know, people get funky about this. You know, my response is, it's a wonderful American story, because I fucking earned it. Mm, okay. I wrote the you piece, wrote I didn't piece. go knock on his door, I didn't send, <laughs> send lilies or any shit like that. Right. I got there, there was, it was a spring, it was, it was in May, I went up there, and they were very, Mr. and Mrs. Ellison were very friendly, they were warm, and they were reserved, and they were very formal. Came in there and she took my coat and I had on the cab, the cab got stopped for a long light and I saw this flower stand with lilacs. So I jumped out of the cab and got lilacs because I remembered something about their place in Berkshire. Anyway, so I got the lilacs and they were, they were very nice and Mrs. Ellison ushered me into the room. There was archways and then there was a study. Ralph was there and he ushered me to one a leather couch. He sat across and it was funny, Uli, we... For, it was about, this is about four o'clock I was asked to get there. For 50 minutes, we went back and forth, talking very formally. And it occurred to me, it was, it was as if, I felt like I was in the pages of one of Henry James's later novels. Really? And then at, at precisely five minutes to five, I saw this hand come down. Because it was all Mr. Ellison, Mr. Callahan, Mr. Ellison. Well, John, would you like a drink? And I was dumb. I was as bad as a visual man. I said, well, sure, Mr. What? Sure, Ralph. That's better, he said. Oh. That's the story. Was great. He just switched like that? Yeah. And you oh, had yeah. to keep up with it. Yeah, that's right. You had to keep up. That's okay. right. So you had, that was your first drink. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that's then the right. conversation continued? Oh, yeah. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't sure whether I was supposed to, whether the invitation was for dinner or was it come at 4 and Ralph will see you. And, and uh, But they intended, and I've always said to them, you know, if I didn't see the table set, so I, if you hadn't liked me, <laughs> you wouldn't have known whether. But at two o'clock in the morning, after they walked me up to the to Broadway and put me in a cab. Really? <laughs> and their friend, you know, these wildcat cabs, and I was tempted to get one of them and let them go home and go to bed. And Fancy said, "No, John, always yellow cab. Never take one." <laughs> they would do initiate, and I was kind of like a son to them. What year was this about? This was 78. Okay. There was no about, about it. It was 1978. Yeah, yeah, he was still teaching at <laughs> then, the university yeah, at that point. Yeah, that's right. right. And I actually know this part from 
somebody who's gone off to do great things. He founded the company Audible for audiobooks, Don Katz. He oh, was yes. a student. He was an Allison student. And he talked to me a lot about how Allison valued the spoken idioms of That's the American right. English so much. Right. That you have to listen to American English to hear these books. And I actually listened to Joe Morton's reading of this book, which it's is great. an incredible it's performance. It's a superb reading. Yeah. It is I want him powerful to do reading the book. I'm hoping they will get... I wrote this. I have seven introductions to the letters, one to each decade, and then a general okay. introduction. I'm going to read those, but I want Random House audiobooks to get Joe. It's incredible. It's an incredible performance. Yeah. It's so Fantastic. powerful. And yeah. somehow he captures these. And he did for Juneteenth too. I don't know if you saw. I that. haven't seen that recording. It's, it's yeah. very good. These subtleties. Yeah. But actually, it's interesting. And he said, "You were like Invisible Man. You came to New York. You didn't quite know the rules." That's right. And Invisible. He keeps sure on he, stumbling across the rules, but then you realize the rules are some of them are so corrupt and horrible. Mm-hmm. And then he realizes that Brotherhood has rules that he could participate in and he would benefit, he get paid. But he realized they're not really for him. They're That's not right. really for his community. They're just using yeah. the community in other it's ways. It's about power. It's a power game. Yeah. And everywhere he walks in, he feels, I could play the game by the rules, but what am yeah. I going to get out of it? Yeah. And I thought this is the very American part. There's That's another right. line where Ellison says, <clears throat> it's not what your experience have made of you, but also what have you made of your experiences. Yeah. Well, and we're improvisers. We improvise our lives. You know? Right. And a trickster. Very important to be a trickster. The, what I wanted to read you was this bit about history here, because he comes back to these guys and what he says. Because he does believe in history. But the question is, what the hell is it? It's, it's, it's multifaceted in many forms. So he says, they were men out, out of time unless they found brotherhood. He doesn't want to give up brotherhood. He's afraid he won't have a personality if he does at this time. But who knew? And now I began to tremble so violently I had to lean against the refuge can. Who knew but that they were the saviors, the true leaders, the bearers of something precious? And of course they are. Culture. African-American culture and improvisation and the form and all that goes with it. The stewards of something uncomfortable, burdensome, which they hated because living outside the realm of history, there was no one to applaud their value, and they themselves failed to understand it. And then he changes the frequency. What if Brother Jack were wrong? What if history was a gambler instead of a force in a laboratory experience? And what if the boys were his ace in the hole? What if history was not a reasonable citizen, but a madman full of paranoid guile, and the boys his agents, his big surprise? You know. So you know. So hey, history. What, what all if of these history things. was a gambler, right? Hmm? If it wasn't, if there was no reason with a capital R behind it, if it right. didn't write and it coherence. Isn't. It writes some things into it, exactly. some things out of it. And Actually, I always liked if you read a passage that I underlined. You always think you're kind of. <laughs> Because it speaks to you. Yeah. And I thought about this too. What if history is written, kind of, some things get written in, some things fall That's off the table. That's the way this book, this book is an embodiment of this vision of history, it seems to me. It's interesting because it's unsettling for all of us. Oh, yeah. Because as you said, we live our lives as yeah. improvising, but at the same time, we want to yeah. have some rules. I mean, one of the reasons is I shouldn't say this, I'll say this after you turn the goddamn thing. No, just tell me now. <laughs> uh, no, one of the great problems in things that infuriates me and makes me very sad is the people right now, these moments of history that we have, for Christ's sake, Donald Trump too is American. 
and all of his bullshit. He's a trickster. Yeah, right, He's right. a con man, for God's sake. Well, it's, it's, you know, I mean, interesting. I was, I was rereading Juneteenth. You know, I said I'd seen you the first time when you presented on that, when the book came out, when you put that book together, basically, out yeah. of an enormous amount of work because yeah. you had to reassemble what Ellison really wanted. But that's a con man, too. And that's kind of somebody Absolutely. who is able to sell to the American public yeah. something that he really isn't. And, and Hickman is yes. an, has an element of the con man as well. So I always thought yeah. that was the other great American novel, which is like, yeah. you know, the Melville character, the con man, all these Americans who are self-made. And I think mm, the depth right. of self-made right. then combined with race, with this big problem in America yeah. that to be self-made, but to be defined by others in certain ways. Yeah. So I think... Ellison tries to tackle this. He said, we're all Americans. We have to be self-made. Except some of us are dealt a different hand in the beginning. Yeah. So we supposedly can't make ourselves into something. It's harder for some than others. Because the place is why you're not supposed to move out of that place. And there's this incredibly (coughs) moving scene when this older couple is evicted from a house. And then all their possessions are strewn over the sidewalk in the snow. And it's just people's lives. And he says, these people work their entire lives. Mm -hmm. Day laborer. And he finds all these artifacts. Yeah. And it's actually very moving. And it's free papers and all that. And he finds the free papers stuff. of somebody yeah. who was freed. That's right. And he says, they're lying in the dirt here, or they're in the dresser drawer. And he said, this is a life. And this is, I think, mm-hmm. the power of the novel, to say these elements have to be reassembled into a story. And he gives yeah. his rousing speech, the first speech he really gives to say, you know, this possession and eviction. But to say that... But, America, yeah. remember what happens in those, all those speeches... Eloquence is fascinating in this book because, you know, finally he's talking and yes, it begins eloquent, he describes the scene, but his advice to his audience is be peaceful, but his words get out of control and his words incite them to do what they want to do and that is rush the goddamn house and they say, get the the hell out of the way, we're going in there, it's so wonderful, so funny. Even in a way, this is the opposition, to sort of be peaceful, you know, put in your work. But he said, these people put in their work since Reconstruction, yeah. and what did they get? A few things thrown over the sidewalk. And she's yeah. not even allowed to pray in her house one more time. So, so, so the speech, basically, are, what he says in the speech argues against his overt purpose in the speech. Right. And then the book is full of stuff like that. Ellison, what did he sound like himself when you were talking with him? I mean, I've seen interviews and everything. It's quite interesting where he picked up this enormous range of language. Yeah, he was good with vernacular. He could, Tell a good story, okay. and uh, and he can also talk very formally, or rotundly. I mean, his vocabulary could be black words right out of the cotton patch mm-hmm, that he mm-hmm. got from slavery, and people did. Says somewhere there, what is it? Full of country glamour. The voices of these young black men. He said, "Full of country." That's glamour, right. Which is a really interesting it's way of putting it. They yeah. still come up from the south, and there's a scene with the yams. Oh, I am what I am. Yeah. When he buys them, and he, and he hears yeah. his. And he also, an autodidact, he really knew the language, he loved language. As I said, he could speak James. Mm-hmm. He could speak a whole bunch of languages. And he recognized it all belonged to the great American language and to the vernacular. There's a letter in there about James and his language. When you were editing Juneteenth, you had to probably finally put the entire extant manuscript, all those pages, into your head and keep that in your head and try to assemble a book out of this, right? It was tough. Juneteenth was kind of different because the second so-called scholarly edition, three days before the shooting, has the actual narratives that he ended up writing, not finished most of them, but uh, 
Although they're all in three days before the shooting. This was the kind of center of the book, the mm-hmm. Hickman Bliss thing. Book one originally had the prologue in there, and then it, it was McIntyre's book. I don't know if you've read this stuff. But, uh, so then I went to book two, because it seemed to me that the central narrative, I mean, I wrestled with this problem, what the hell to do with it. Maybe leave it alone in the Library of Congress, or or just do a kind of scholarly edition. And then it just seemed to me that so much of the manuscript and the story was really rich, and was a novel that whatever I did should be something for all the people that loved Ellis. So not just a scholarly edition. Yeah, I did right. not want to do that. So you know, Juneteenth was what I thought was the central core. Well, I talked about it, it was like the House of Fiction. When James talks about the House of Fiction. It didn't have extra rooms, it didn't have a guest house, you know, it was, it was the central theme, I thought. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was tough stuff, because I thought that when he died, he had indicated that to David Remnick of the New Yorker that he was almost done, he would have something very soon. And I kept thinking, if I could just find it, right. it was all but done, and this simply wasn't true. So you were looking for it through the papers to see maybe there wasn't right? Oh, yeah, was oh, yeah, and there wasn't. And how long did it take you to put that together, basically? Well, it took me a, a full year and a half, sort of, yeah. to realize, no, this is what you got. And then it took me another year, two years. When to you go time. back to Invisible Man and Teacher today, it lays out some options, in a way, how to live in America. Yeah. To go by the rules, to yeah. go against the rules, or to describe the reality the way you see it truthfully and make the best of that way. And I wonder why this book resonated so strongly and for 50 years has shaped an entire discussion about what literature is supposed to be. What do you think? I think there's one part, it's unsentimental. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think that's very important because I think sentimentality allows us not to confront certain things. Yeah. If it's sentimental, we are moved, but we don't think. Yeah. I think we'd rather be moved than to tears or to anger than to think about the conditions. Well, we cover our cliches. Yeah. sentimental. And I think since the book lays out some of these options in such powerful language, it's hard to make more arguments about them. They say, there's this approach, accommodate. There's this approach, resist. Here's the other approach, organize politically. The last one is just become a kind of visionary speaker, separatist. None of them really work, so the book frustrates your expectation to say this is the key to a political problem, yeah. which I don't think art well, is a key. It's actually... The letters are going to be incredibly helpful with this because there's one letter that's just a great, great letter. He wrote it. He was working on his book, second book, and he wrote this letter on May 19, 1954. The previous day, he'd been listening to some jazz on the radio and a bulletin interrupted the program and it said, the Supreme Court has just decided a unanimous decision. It was Brown v. Board. And it blows him away. He writes this letter the next day to his friend, teacher at Tuskegee, Mortiza Sprague, he dedicated Shadow Act to Sprague. Right. And he starts out, it's obviously he owes Sprague a letter, and he, it's blah, 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 it's today it's a nice day, and I'm doing this and that. And then all of a sudden there's a cut, and he shifts to this wonderful final paragraph. He says, well, so the court has decided, and now we must be psychologically... But basically he, he affirms the decision, he said, this is a wonderful... Day. But then he begins to see what's ahead. And he says, it'll be wonderful for the children. But he also sees the problems, you know, mm-hmm. how integration, it'll throw all hell of a lot of fantastic black secondary teachers out of school. And, you know, because they, they, they won't replace them. And, and a lot of the effects 
it didn't give a damn about, didn't show any respect for what black people had developed right. and created in their own communities. And he talks about its impact already on him writing this book, because he said, I'm writing this damn book now, why the hell do I have to be a writer in this, this difficult time? And he says, my book has the theme, The Evasion of Identity. There's nowhere else he is so clear about the theme of the second Hickman book. It's about the American theme of invasion of identity. He says it's characteristically America in which we have to get beyond. And then he ends the letter, and this is the way he ends it. He gives a kind of a toast in a way. He says, well, he says, here's, here's to integration. The only integration that comes, integration of the personality. That's what this book's about. And that's what Ralph was about till he died. You know, there to before he died, he was still doing the work of integrating his personality. Well, I think it's himself. interesting that maybe this is the reason, rather than what I just said, why this book resonates so much. Because I think it is it's integration of the personality for a much bigger project. Mm -hmm. If you call it America, you call it democracy, you call it equality, right. or something or justice. But for a much we can't bigger do project, it. but you can't you can't without that integration have yeah. other types of. Integration. And I think his point would be, and I think this is point in Invisible Man. You can't have it on a national scale unless you have it on the individual scale. You really believe in the individual, the autonomy of the individual, right. and the connection and the kinships. Right. But that was something that you can't run from. When you spent time with him, what was his sense of his stature in America? He was the American man of letters for quite a long time, very honored, and then also embattled a bit by the, all oh, these yeah. other trends that happened in the <laughs> yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah. He was himself. He didn't worry about that much. The story I would tell you is, you know, we became maybe an over, over, within two years, we were very, very close friends, and there was a filial, paternal aspect to it. And we were a threesome, too, and uh, Fanny was a very close friend. We were in pretty close touch. And I, and I was at Bard College for a year. I had some fellowship there in, in 84, 85. And uh, at one point, Ralph called me. And he, he said, you know, I just I want to ask you. This was in early 85. And Reagan did the, the Presidential Medal of the Arts. And Reagan had just began it. They were going to award the first bunch that year. And he had been offered the medal. And he said, well, kind of decide what to do. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, a lot of his friends, and most of them were white, these goddamn white liberals. I mean, they were writers, and, and not all, not people like Saul Bellow, but right. other people who said, well, it's Reagan, how can you take this medal from right. Reagan? Right. <laughs> I said, Ralph, they're wrong. It's not Reagan's medal. Reagan happens to be the president. Huh. He is giving, he's in this office, and he is offering you the medal. You're getting the medal. It's for the country. It's because of the country. I don't agree with your friends. you got to take it. Well, he took it. He accepted it. Okay. Uh, and he kind of chuckled after he... He heard me because I don't think he had any. There was any question he was going to take it, right? You know? uh, and he was proud of it. Well, undeservedly so. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a short story, yes. and he never he didn't change his mind about Reagan except to say the guy is really charming, but he didn't, he didn't like Reagan's policy any more than he had before. You know, there's a short story. There's <laughs> an early story called "That I Had the Wings." Yeah, these two young boys and they're born. They jump off a roof. Oh, you're telling your audience? No, they jump off a roof because. <laughs> They actually want to try, try something, they're so bored that they put these two little babies, these chicks, the chicks. into a little parachute and self-made and throw them off the roof. It doesn't end so well. No, it doesn't. But the one boy gets into enormous trouble with his grandmother That's right. because he chants a little ditty. 
and it says, if I were president and lived in the White House, I would eat all the fancy chocolate candy bars <laughs> yeah, and I would swing on the gates of the, the White shops. House and he curses. And yeah. then he gets into huge trouble because he used the Lord's name and, they, right. and he said, I could be president. Yeah. And she said, how dare you? How dare you as a young black boy presume you could be president? And it's interesting. And there's this generational conflict. She was yeah. born, as they say, quote, in slavery so, times. Yeah. And these two boys are saying, wow, we're in so much trouble now because I dare to say I could be president. Yeah. So in some ways, it's an interesting story to even read or teach yeah, to major young people who think, well, we have passed Obama. This I is how it happened. I was following blood. Yeah. You're not supposed <laughs> to take it behind a certain point. Right. You know? <laughs> Social equality exactly. is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing little it story, is. an early story, that they throw these little chicks off the roof and try to fly, and they're completely hampered, yeah. locked into this other... They're the chicks. They don't know it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and story. the grandmother, you get the yeah. No, Ralph didn't mince words. What he saw, you know. He, You're editing these letters now, so this is this book is going to be how long about? Oh Christ, twelve. I'll find out tomorrow. Twelve hundred pages. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, they're letters from 1933. First one, he, he writes to his mother from not from Tuskegee, as people may think, but it, it's from Bowling, Oklahoma, which is where there was a state reform school really for boys, for Negro boys. He's up there looking for a job. And then they pick up again in June when he goes to Tuskegee. So from 1933 wow. to 1993, 60 years. That's incredible. It's an amazing count of the country, yeah. the culture, and this man. You know, it's going to change a lot of things. I think it's going to change a lot of things. It will not change the kind of enduring relevance, I think, of Invisible Man, right? No. It'll just it's going to increase it. It's going to increase it, right? Because right. it's going to get right. some commentary. Right. The letters that these young people write, Ralph, and his delight in responding to them, and his insistence on that he was doing certain things that maybe they didn't pick up or other people hadn't picked up on the book. So do you think the book ends, he's going to come out of the hole underground, and he's going to make his way? Because the book is, it's been set in a theater a couple of times. I think there's been effort to put it on stage and film. It was and on stage. And yeah. it's so many times, and there's so many photographs of it, and so there's always someone locked in this basement with these, 1,300, whatever it is. Yeah. Like Bob said, I just don't know whether that's really what the book is Well, you're right. By. And they're wrong. It's such a book of momentum and movement. And well, Ralph said, you know, of course he came up, the book's, the book's out. The book's out, right. Yeah. <laughs> he does that trick, you know. Yeah, he was coming out. He, he was. I wonder if the act of reading it is actually the act of for him writing and for us reading it, getting out of this hole. You mean for the reader? For us, yeah. For us, yeah. Yeah, just like he did. We have to do something of the same kind of brooding and introspection that he did. That's right. That's right. right. I want to thank you, John. Yeah, you you, really, really. Yeah, I wish we had another two hours. (laughs) Wonderful conversation. I think, well, when the letters come out, I will have you um, be on the show again. I will do it. And I do want to thank you personally for putting Juneteenth together. Thank you. Because I was one of those general readers who was able to read the book then. Out yeah. of my scholarly life. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's why I did it, man. Okay. Okay. That's great. Ah, I can hear you say. So it was all a build-up to bore us with his buggy jiving. He only wanted us to listen to him rave. But only partially true. Being invisible and without substance, a disembodied voice, as it were. What else could I do? What else but try to tell you what was really happening when your eyes were looking through? And it is this which frightens me. Who knows but that, on the lower frequencies, I speak.
for you.